Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We will get there in a few minutes. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Today I'm going to conclude my preaching series on the doctrines of grace by looking at the doctrine of persevering grace, as Pastor Don said earlier, which is the grace of God that results in the perseverance of the saints, that God's people will persevere until we see Jesus face to face. Now, as we've learned, the doctrines of grace are drawn from the teachings of Scripture and answer the question, how can a person be saved? How can a person go from being an enemy of God, deserving only His divine wrath, to being one of His adopted children? And the answer, God alone saves sinners. We are saved by God's grace alone, through the gift of saving faith alone, faith in the saving work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. From the beginning to the end, it is the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These five doctrines, the doctrines of grace, begin with the problem of radical depravity. Remember, the sin of Adam was imputed or credited to all of his descendants such that every human being born after him, with the exception of Jesus, has been born a sinner, born spiritually dead, unable to please God and having no desire to do so. All of us were once in that dreadful helpless condition. We were in bondage to our sin nature, and we would have remained that way unless God chose by his own will to be gracious towards us and to choose us for salvation through his son. We refer to that as unconditional election, whereby the father in eternity past unconditionally chose a particular number of radically depraved human beings to be saved and to be saved through the gracious redeeming work of the Son of God. Those chosen by the Father were then given to the Son and the Son was sent by the Father to provide redemption for them by dying in their place as we just celebrated, paying the eternal penalty for their sins and we call that the doctrine of particular redemption. The saving work continues with efficacious grace being extended by the Spirit of God to each one chosen by the Father and redeemed by the Son. In this case, the Holy Spirit effectively calls each one to faith in Christ through the outward call of the gospel and the inward call of the Spirit. As we heard two weeks ago, that inward work of the Spirit of God includes regeneration or causing us to be born again, conviction of sin, drawing us to Christ, and that results in our repentance and our putting faith in Christ for our salvation. This results in us being reconciled to God, 
adopted into his family, and then being indwelt, empowered, and sealed by the Spirit of God. Praise be to God. Amen? Now today, we will see that God not only saves those he has chosen, but he also guarantees the perseverance of the saints unto glory through his persevering grace. Now this makes total sense when you think about it. Without this core doctrine of God's persevering grace, everything that he had previously accomplished could be undone. Think about it. Apart from this truth, sovereign election could be nullified. Without this truth, particular redemption could be canceled out. Without this teaching, efficacious grace could be made ineffective. However, this is not what God's word teaches us will happen. It teaches us that God's work of salvation will stand. That none of the elect will fall from grace and be lost. That none for whom Christ died will perish. That none who the Spirit regenerates will ever fail to be glorified. God is sovereign over the process of salvation from beginning to end. And so all chosen by the Father are redeemed by the Son. And all are drawn to true saving faith by the Spirit and are sanctified by the Spirit and the Word and are glorified as well. Amen? This is the doctrine of persevering grace. This is the teaching of Scripture that those who have been foreknown and predestined to saving faith by God in eternity past, having been called by His Word and the Spirit, regenerated and justified in Christ, are now being conformed to the image of Christ, which will result in their being glorified. Those persons chosen by God will not and cannot be lost. So I had you open up to Romans chapter 8. We're going to spend a little bit of time there. But to start, I'd like us all to stand, if you can, for the reading of God's Word. I'm just going to read Romans 8, verses 28 to 30 to begin with. Listen to what God's Word says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now we have learned, even recently in our home fellowship groups, that if you want to properly understand a passage, you have to look at three things. 
What are they? Context, 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 right? And so I want to just give you the context for this passage, which is very familiar to us. This passage really begins back in Romans chapter 7. Because at the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul is describing his own personal struggle with sin. That's right. The Apostle Paul writing this 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. After he's been an apostle for 20 years, he writes that he struggles with sin. And some would say, well, if you're struggling with sin, you might not be saved. And so Paul addresses that. Look at Romans 8.1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we are credited with his righteousness. Praise be to God. And then he goes on to write this in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, speaking of the saints, those who have trusted in Christ, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Praise be to God. Even though we still struggle with our flesh, with that indwelling sin nature, even though we still struggle with that, we are indwelt by the spirit of God. He is the guarantor of our salvation. He is the seal of God's approval upon our soul. Now, he goes on to write, starting in verse 12, that we are not to be debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. It says sons, but it means sons, daughters, men, women, all who've trusted in Christ. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Adopted into God's family. Not just forgiven. Adopted. So we can cry out, Daddy. 
Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're adopted. Nothing can change that. And you've heard me teach that when this was written in the Roman Empire at that time, an adopted child could never be cut out of the father's will. Guaranteed. A natural born child could. In fact, in the Roman Empire, the natural born child could be put to death by the father if he didn't please him. But not an adopted child. They were protected. Just as we are protected from anything that would attempt to remove us from our relationship with God. And then our great text we just read. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that his son might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. I want you to note something here. It is God who called. It is God who justified. It is God who also glorified. All past tense. Note that. He called us. Through Christ, he justified us. But Paul also says, he's glorified us. Now, have we reached that glorification yet? Not yet. But with God, listen to me, it's as good as done. He speaks in the past tense because nothing can change it. It's predestined by God to happen. And nothing can stop it. In fact, he ends this chapter by saying just that. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think the Apostle Paul believed that nothing could separate us from Christ. What do you think? Nothing. Nothing inside of us, nothing outside of us. Nothing, absolutely nothing can take us out of his love. So the doctrine of persevering grace is precisely what Paul declares it to be in this glorious chapter. Namely, that those whom God has foreknown and predestined to be conformed to the image and likeness of his Son will indeed reach that goal. They will be harassed, 
constantly tempted, and frequently even sin. Nevertheless, in the end, they will be with Jesus, and they will be like him, because this is what God, in his grace, has predetermined for them, for us. He has declared it, and he will bring it to pass through his persevering grace. We sometimes refer to this doctrine as once saved, always saved, which is entirely appropriate. For those whom God chooses to save, he will never let go of. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Not may be faithful to complete it, or if you're lucky, he'll be faithful to complete it. He will be faithful to complete it. And if there's something we know about God, it's that he's faithful, amen? Faithful, trustworthy. This persevering grace includes a twofold aspect in the life of the believer that I want to look at this morning. First, the sanctifying work of God causes every believer to pursue a life of holiness throughout their life in Christ. And second, the securing work of God ensures that believers are eternally secure in God's grace. They will never fall away because He will not let go of them. It's not because we hold on to Him. It's because He holds on to us. So let's start with that work of ongoing sanctification. Persevering grace causes every true believer to persevere in following Christ and being further conformed to his image and likeness. And we call that process sanctification. It's interesting, the word perseverance in the New Testament, that Greek word is a compound word meaning to remain under. It carries the idea of enduring under something. And in the case of the true followers of Christ, we remain under the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word, which are the means of sanctification in our lives. This means that every saint will persevere in pursuing, listen to me, pursuing obedience to God and persevere in having faith in God and in God's power to sanctify them. Now, this does not mean they will never sin or they will never disobey their Lord. Every one of us still commit acts of sin. But as believers, we are not going to remain in that sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and creates in us the sincere desire to repent of our sin and to live in such a manner as to glorify God. It is the indwelling Holy Spirit who creates in us a strong desire to please our Lord and to pursue the goal of becoming more like Him. That's produced in us by His Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
verses 1 to 3, we read these words. Finally then, brethren, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What's God's will for my life? My sanctification. That is his will. That I would be fully and completely conformed to the image of Christ. That I would become the image bearer that God created me to be. Bearing the very image of God. That's his will for me. And the true child of God is compelled by the Spirit of God within to live in a manner to please God. And the Spirit of God compels us to do this more and more. So it is not I, but Christ in me who empowers me to do so. If it relied on me, myself, and I, I'd be in trouble. But it relies on Christ in me, the Spirit of Christ in me, to see this accomplished. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24, we hear these familiar words, which are a benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Who's going to sanctify you? Not you, right? The God of peace, Father, Son, and Spirit. May he himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. It's guaranteed, folks. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Do what? Bring you to full conformity to his son. Fully sanctify you. Right now we're in that process, aren't we? But one day it will be complete. And we shall be glorified. Not I, but Christ in me. So the ongoing work of sanctification in our lives is empowered by God himself. And he will complete that work. A second aspect of persevering grace is the securing work of God that ensures our eternal security. The eternal security of believers is based upon the clear teaching of Scripture that our God simply will not let go of us. All whom He has chosen for salvation, He will hold on to and He will not let us go. What does that mean? That means no child of God will ever lose their salvation. The passages that seem to indicate the possibility of someone losing their salvation is not speaking of the true, redeemed child of God. It is speaking of those instead who simply profess faith in Christ. 
without possessing faith in Christ. It is spoken about those who may be attending a church. They may even be members of a church. It's warning them, make sure you're saved. But no child of God will ever lose their salvation. We will be forever kept secure in God's saving hands. And we will be brought home to be with him at the proper time. Eternal security is not predicated upon our holding on to Christ. As I said earlier. It's predicated on Christ holding on to us. And you know where I'm going next. John chapter 10. Why don't you turn in your Bibles there? John chapter 10. Very familiar passage. Jesus here speaking about being the good shepherd. We could read the whole chapter, but for the sake of time, I want to look at verses 27 through 30. John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. These verses are very significant because... They touch upon four of the doctrines of grace. Jesus identifies his sheep as having been given to him by the Father. In other words, they're a gift of God's unconditional electing love. Chosen by the Father, then given to the Son to redeem through particular atonement. The Son dying for their sins that he might provide for them eternal life. Furthermore, the efficacious work of the Holy Spirit causes these sheep to respond to the gracious call of God, to hear his voice and follow him. No chance that they will not do that because the Spirit of God makes it happen. However, what these verses really emphasize is God's preserving grace, holding on to them no matter what and never letting go of them. Note this, the sheep are in danger. That's the context here. The sheep are in danger. It is stated that there will be attempts to snatch them out of the hands of God. The enemy wants to do that. Yet Jesus emphatically asserts that there are absolute security is that nothing and no one can take them out of his hand and he says if that's not enough they can't take you out of my father's hand I don't know about you but that sounds pretty secure to me so the doctrine of Persevering grace includes both ongoing sanctification in the believer's life and the securing work of God that guarantees our eternal security. 
This brings us to the fact that God promises in his word that all who believe in Christ for salvation shall be given eternal life. Eternal life. So, what is eternal life? How long does it last? And when do we receive it? What is eternal life? How long does it last? When do we receive it? So let's start with what is eternal life. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. These two words, eternal life, aeonius, zoe in the Greek, refer to spiritual life, a supernatural life that none have naturally due to the effects of sin, due to the effects of the radical depravity that affects all human beings before we are born again, before we are raised spiritually from spiritual death to spiritual life. Jesus defined eternal life for us in John 17, 3, when he was praying to the Father. He said this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That they know you, the only true God. The know here is the Greek word, Ginosko, meaning to know experientially, to know intimately. This is not just knowing facts, this is knowing the person. And the only way for us to know the person of God is through the work of God, causing us to be born again, revealing God's love to us, and drawing us to Him. This refers to the supernatural life and relationship with God that we experience both now and for all eternity. How long does it last? There was a chuckle. It's eternal life. So it lasts forever. It's eternal. It doesn't just describe a new quality of life, but it describes the unending duration. It speaks of a spiritual life without end. So this is a new spiritual life that will never stop existing in a person once they have received it. So when do we receive it? Now that's the critical question. When do we receive it? How does this eternal life start? Do I receive it when I prove myself worthy of it? Do I receive it when I die and I'm finally free from my sin nature? Do I receive it when Jesus returns? No, no, and no. Eternal life begins at the moment we believe in Christ and trust in him for our salvation. At that moment. In fact, it actually precedes that moment. 
because we wouldn't have done so unless God had already caused us to be born again. Every true believer in Christ is given eternal life at the very moment he believes. But don't take my word for it. Listen to what God says. Just a few of the many verses. John 3.36, we read this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I put the underline there for obvious reasons. Already has, not will have in the future. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. These are all being spoken by Jesus, the Son of God, who knows what he's talking about. And so, if we have believed, we have believed because we already have eternal life. Jesus makes it crystal clear that all who truly believe in him are given eternal life and therefore are already living that eternal spiritual existence. In John's first letter, he reinforces this truth. Listen to what he writes in 1 John 5, 1. John writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. There's that reference that tells us that regeneration, being born again, has to precede believing, trusting in Christ for salvation. We would not have done so unless God made us alive together with Christ, has been born of God. And then in, in 1 John 5, 11 and 12, he writes these words, God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So if we have believed and trusted in Christ, we've been indwelt by the Spirit of the Son of God, we have eternal life. It's not future. It's now. Praise be to God. Now note this. Note this. Professing faith in the Son is not enough. Claiming to know the Son is not enough. Acting like you're a follower of the Son is not enough. You must have the Son, and He must have you. You must be in the Son and the Son in you in order to have eternal life. And once you are in the Son and He is in you, then you are eternally secure Because nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's love is our eternal security. Yet not I, but Christ in me. I also want us to see that eternal life is promised to true believers. 
Now, again, I want to remind you that this does not mean that we will not experience various trials and tribulations in this present life. Indeed, we do and we shall. It means that we have confidence that everything we must endure has a purpose. And that purpose is to honor and glorify our Savior and to continue to be further conformed into His image until we do see Him face to face. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Just going to touch on this close to the end here. 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to these verses, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Once again in this passage... We read that it is God who has caused us to be born again. By grace we were saved through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Peter reminds us that we're saved to an eternal inheritance. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It cannot be lost, it cannot be diminished in any way. Because it is being kept in heaven for you and I. And even more importantly, listen, we are being kept and guarded by God's power through faith. Not only is our inheritance secure, but we are secure. God wouldn't secure our inheritance for us if He didn't intend us to be there to receive it. He guarantees it. And therefore, we rejoice and should rejoice. Amen? Because no matter what we have to face in this life, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Our faith, which is a gift from God, is a guarantee. And it results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace. We are secure in the love of our God. We are secure in the arms of our Savior. And we need not fear. For nothing can separate us from his eternal love. Nothing. Nothing. 
So I want to just close with a reminder of what I said about the doctrines of grace earlier. The one big idea, and it's on the insert in your bulletin, God alone saves sinners. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as it should be. Amen? And I have a new summary statement. I added a few things on the end. So if you have the old handout, throw that away. Replace it with the new one. I didn't take anything away from it. I added to it, just so you know that. There were no mistakes in the old one. It just wasn't quite complete. Let me read this to you. Salvation is accomplished by the almighty power of the triune God. The Father chose a people, unconditional election. The Son died for them, particular redemption. And the Holy Spirit makes Christ's death effective by bringing the elect to faith and repentance, efficacious grace. Thereby causing them to willingly obey the gospel call. This entire process, election, redemption, regeneration, sanctification, and glorification is the work of God and is by His grace alone. And sanctification and glorification would fall under our heading for today. Persevering grace. And the bottom line is this. Once God has set his love upon us, we are eternally secure in God's persevering grace and love. And it is all through Christ in us. Amen? All glory be unto him. Let's pray.